justliberty.org. It's good for you and it's good for me. Justliberty.org. Justliberty.org. Hi, this is Amanda Marzullo. This May, a man was released from the Arlington City Jail. Within two minutes of exiting the building, he noticed a veal parked at the curb, running, and with the keys in the ignition. At this point, our hero got into the car and drove away like a bat out of hell, exceeding 100 miles per hour as he weaved in and out of traffic and ultimately lost control of the vehicle, rolled it several times, and totaled it. So Scott, what do you think drove this fellow to engage in such reckless behavior just two minutes after leaving the local lockup? You know, I'm, I'm glad you asked because this was all a big misunderstanding that got blown out of proportion by the media. I, obviously, I had no intention of stealing the car. When, when I came out and saw the vehicle empty and running with the keys in it, I just assumed it was a new service from Uber. <laughs> I, I, I thought, damn, damn, technology these days is amazing. This is awesome. And I just got in it and drove away. And the driver I'd called probably showed up a few minutes later. It, it was all a big misunderstanding. Yeah, yeah. And the misunderstanding clearly explains why you decided to accelerate to 100 miles per hour. Well, there's a reason I'm calling a rideshare service, Mandy. I'm a terrible driver. You know, I, I'm not either, but that's why I don't drive at 100 miles per hour. Well, to each their own. I find the rideshare services very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the June 2019 episode of Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious Podcast, covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm here today with our good friend, Mandy Marzullo, who's executive director of the Texas Defender Service. How are you doing, Mandy? Never been better, Scott. I don't even believe that after this session. Good <laughs> Lord. Well, you know, we're, we're all day, picking ourselves up off the mat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> every day is a blessing, Scott. Don't forget that. This month, Mandy and I review what happened on justice reform bills at the Texas legislature. Dozens of Dallas cops got caught posting prejudiced musings on Facebook. And Mandy and I discuss what it really means to run for office as a progressive prosecutor in Texas. Mandy, what are you looking forward to talking about on the podcast today? Progressive prosecutors. It's, it's a subject that baffles me, and I'm always happy to think about it. I, I, I consider them like Bigfoot, you know, <laughs> so sort of a mythological creature, but we'll, we'll talk about that soon. Yeah. First up, a national group called the Plain View Project analyzed thousands of social media posts from current and former police officers in a handful of departments of varying sizes, including Dallas and Denison in Texas, and discovered a significant number of posts that were bigoted, promoted violence, belittled due process, or otherwise undermined public trust in law enforcement. BuzzFeed broke the story, which the New York Times and Washington Post followed up, but in Dallas, the morning news and local TV news ignored the story for days, choosing instead to give voice to attacks on Renee Hall, the city's first black female chief, for allegedly being soft on crime. In the context of requesting funding for her department's gang unit, Chief Hall had rightfully suggested that the failure to focus on prisoner reentry was contributing to former inmates returning to violent street gangs because they couldn't find housing, jobs, and a path to rehabilitation upon release. But critics jumped at the chance to claim she was soft on crime and wouldn't arrest violent offenders, which was clearly a misrepresentation. So, Mandy, why do you think the media in Dallas are so focused on Chief Hall's comments, but waited for days to report on bigoted and problematic comments by dozens of current and former Dallas police officers? I, I think what we're seeing is that the reporters in Dallas who have been covering these two stories clearly do not understand public safety issues 
and how to insure it and what is and is not a good policy. So sort of like as you suggested in the prompt here, you know, the Dallas chief, Renee Hall's policies make a lot of sense. That is just a responsible thing to do. It's been shown time and time again that if you want someone not to reoffend, you have to set them up for success when they get out because the time you spend incarcerated sort of destroys your support system. And especially because she's specifically talking about gang members. This was all in the context of her requesting more money for her gang program at the department. And so it's really disingenuous to think that, oh, when a gang member gets out of prison and has no support services, no reentry help or anything, and is flailing on their own, can't get a job, can't get housing, that they might turn back to their old job. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, gang crime in general is typically the type of crime that happens when someone doesn't have alternatives. No one wants to set it like grows up and says, yes, I want to deal drugs. And I want to be on the street corner here. I want to engage in turf wars and, you know, raise my mortality, the odds of my mortality. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And meanwhile, let's talk about these Facebook posts from dozens and dozens of Dallas cops Oh my gosh, <laughs> that was such a worse set of commentary than anything the chief said. That scared me to death. What the chief said was totally reasonable. And and, and in good policy. And that was good policy. And then what we're talking about with the plane, yeah, it, the plane view project's work exposed a public safety threat. Exactly. A legitimate one. I mean, at the when you look at some of the posts to Facebook that they had, a lot of them are promoting and endorsing the use of force in unreasonable circumstances. So glorifying it, glorifying it. Like one said, statistics show that criminals commit less crimes after they've been shot. So aside from the grammar there, that is saying let's shoot people. That's right. That's right. It solves problems. Yeah. And they're very explicitly in some of these saying, yeah. you know, violence solves problems. Yeah. Again, that's exactly what one of them said <laughs> at yeah. one point. This is a good thing. And that is terrifying on a number of levels. One, it's showing that they're very likely to either violate your rights or kill you. Or two, it's also making people who fall into some of the groups that they are, you know, poking fun at in these posts. There are other sort of blatantly racist posts in these pace in these Facebook commentaries, um, less likely to call the police, which oh, makes them more likely to be a victim of crime. Absolutely. If I if I were Muslim and saw those posts that the Plain View Project exposed on Islam on those issues, I would never call the Dallas Police Department. Because there's yeah. a fourteen percent chance of whatever it's gonna be one of these guys that picks up the line. Yeah. And oh my gosh. So that it was really outlandish. It was outlandish that the media got so focused on her wanting to pillory Renee Hall for, you know, having the temerity to imagine that there might be a reason that someone who commits a violent crime turned to a life of crime. Maybe they had few options. Maybe there's a yeah. there's a backstory. Maybe every individual is their own has their own narrative that they have to live with. Or or that, if, or but, if you don't even believe in government, you know, providing these services, but that in doing that we're going to save money. We're going to incarcerate less and reduce violence. And reduce violence. But that the but then at the same time, these cops that are actively promoting violence that are yeah. actively promoting harmful behaviors 
we have nothing to say about them for days and days. Finally, the Associated Press had run the story and even updated the story. And then eventually the Dallas Morning News last night uh, added a couple of lines to the AP story. And that was their coverage after a full week. Wow, this is a big thing. And yeah. most of the other cities where the Plainview Project researched actually reacted in a more responsible way in St. Louis and in Philadelphia and yeah. Phoenix. Um, the police departments had to answer questions. The reporters actually behaved like someone who cared about these things and pressed them for information. It just didn't happen in Dallas, and I'm, I'm not quite sure why. Mm. Next up, the 86th Texas legislature is over, but very few reform legislation passed. And what did increased penalties. So Scott, let's talk about the what the legislature did and didn't accomplish this session. Why don't you get us started? Well, the biggest thing they accomplished by far, mm -hmm. and we should give credit where it's due, is the abolition of the driver responsibility surcharge. Um, yay. For, for yay, indeed. Oh my gosh, this is, this is a big deal. 1.5 million people currently have their licenses suspended because they couldn't afford to pay these surcharges. It has been a complete scourge um, on the justice system for poor people, on driver's license suspensions, just an array of issues this this raised, and we finally are getting rid of it. Mm -hmm. um, everyone who had their license suspended before and owed debt, those debts will be wiped clean as of September 1st. Going forward, they are keeping the surcharges and renaming them criminal fines for DWI. Mm -hmm. but eliminating them for all the others, which is 88% of them. So it's a really big deal. This is going to help hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And that's easily the most important criminal justice thing that the legislature did this time. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the others were smaller potatoes. Uh, they, they did abolish red light cameras, which conceivably could uh, uh, reduce a lot of existing debt and keep from racking up more. Um, there were some uh, smaller updates to debtor's prison legislation from last time and mm -hmm. and uh, re reducing the number of driver's license suspensions uh, that are automatically done. And, and those are all good. But almost all of the big stuff that was being pushed mm -hmm. by reform organizations just flat out failed. The marijuana penalty reduction bill that both parties had endorsed, Governor Abbott had endorsed, it failed. The Democrats killed the Sandra Bland bill in the House. That was endorsed by both parties, bipartisan reform, failed. Prison air conditioning got a billion-dollar fiscal note, and so they the bill changed to say they'd study it, and that even that mm. couldn't pass. Uh, amendment to strip the dead suspect loophole out of the Public Information Act was taken out in the Senate. Uh, Kirk Watson had a bill that he um, asked for that to be taken off of. And just over and over, lots of things that had bipartisan support that were moderate but important steps forward just, just failed. I know you had some on your death penalty issues that were almost inexplicable. Yeah, no, they just didn't make sense. I mean, a lot of bills that we were sort of sponsoring made it out of the House only to die in the Senate. And the big one that got the most coverage was a bill that was in response to a series of decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court that said that the way we are determining whether a defendant is intellectually disabled and exempt from the death penalty violates the Constitution. Now, you know, for the longest time, we were using a set of standards 
that were based off of, in part at least, you know, of mice and men. There was right m- fictional characters, yeah, literally yeah. drawn from fiction. Fiction, and and that that you know, the Supreme Court said, "Hey, you've got to use the medical standards here and look, or professional standards, as they call them, um, in employing it and figuring this out." And then, you know, we had a situation where the Court of Criminal Appeals said, yes, we're going to use, you know, the diagnostic criteria, but then looked at factors that had no bearing on that assessment. So the Supreme Court again in February said, no, Texas, really get this right. So the bill that we were running was, you know, making sure that courts employ a standard that is scientific and to make sure that the procedures that they used is limited to just that determination. You're not considering other factors that go awry. And for some reason, we just could not get that through the Senate. Well, that was the story of this session, is a lot of good reform legislation passed the House and died the moment it got to the Senate, or it got amended onto Senate bills in the House and then got stripped off at the end. Mm -hmm. Um, The Senate was just a massive stumbling block and we've talked about this before but the lieutenant governor really just intervened to impose his will in a way that really was unusual even for him yeah i mean there's an extent to which the, the presiding officer of the senate or the house historically has sort of let the members you know define their own issues and their own priorities and they may have their own priorities like dennis bonin wanted school finance reform this time around mm-hmm. but those aren't the only priorities, but in the Texas Senate, Dan Patrick's priorities have become the only priorities. Yeah. I mean, this was the first time I've ever heard of sort of the the chair of the body's staff intervening to determine what bills even received a hearing. So it's not discussing what comes to a vote and what doesn't. I mean, that's that's limiting what we can have a dialogue on. Right. Or just refusing to refer bills in the first place. Yeah. Um, lots of stuff just didn't even get referred once it came over from the House. And that, you know, hey, the, the lieutenant governor has absolute power. It's just the first time we've seen someone employ it that way. As aggressively on as many bills, there's always a, a circumstance where, you know, uh, someone will intervene and, and, and do it that way. We had a bill to legalize needle exchange in Texas that mm-hmm. passed the House a couple of sessions ago. And we'd really been working the Senate, and it looked like we had our 19 votes to pass the Senate. Mm-hmm. And Dan Patrick could tell, and so it was it would, never referred. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or it was referred at the very last minute when it was too late to have a hearing, I think, at the end. Yeah, I, th- I remember. And then he sent it to a committee that was never going to let it That's go. right. So you, you, you occasionally will see it as a one-off. This time, it was a, a first order of business. Oh, no. We have to go check with the big boss before we can even hear it in a committee or, or tell you whether or not we support it going and, into their offices. And and normally, you know, I think that maybe some of this was happening previously. What surprised me, you know, there are problems with this from a policy standpoint, why it doesn't make sense. Like one is that there are, there's no informed decision making. Like the purpose of a hearing is to flush out what, issues there are, what opposition there is, to take a front, to make a front end decision on an issue is really relying a lot on your staff. And in this case, I really think he had a staffer that 
was more pro-government than the rest of Texas. Right. Sort of like the government always wins faction on the Court of Criminal Appeals is just always going to side with the state. Doesn't really matter what that. I agree. Yeah. And some of the, the arguments that I was hearing indirectly because he wouldn't meet with me um, didn't make sense if you were an actual expert in the area. There was a lot going on, and I feel like we also didn't have champions like we've had in the past in the city. Yeah. So in the past, we had people like Rodney Ellis, or after he left, Connie Burton on the GOP side stepped mm-hmm. up. People willing to actually push reform agendas more aggressively, and there's just no one like that anymore in the Senate. We have quite a few champions on the House side. On the Senate side... No one has stepped up in the way that, that Rodney Ellis, for example, had for for years and years to say, okay, I'm going to be the one to lead the charge on civil rights issues. That person doesn't exist right now. It's unfortunate. Next, Scott and I play fill in the blank, a game in which we recommend how to finish the same thought. Okay, me first. The Texas Supreme Court recently ruled that the former Nueces County District Attorney was immune for liability when he fired a subordinate for turning over exculpatory evidence to a defendant. Mandy, fill in the blank. The court's ruling sends the message to prosecutors that... They should violate the law if their supervisor tells them to. I mean, what's really strange about this decision is that in the private sector, so for example, if I instruct one of my attorneys to violate the law and they refuse to do so, I absolutely cannot fire them for insubordination. But now if my, if our adversary, the prosecutors, if the elected says to the, the line staff attorney on the case, hey, you know, suppress this evidence and they don't, he can fire the subordinate. And in this case, did fire them. Um, I, I'd something similar. I'd say it sends the message to prosecutors that elected district attorneys are above the law in Texas. Yeah. That you know it doesn't really matter if the Supreme Court or the Michael Morton Act or whatever says you have a, a right to this information. That if the DA wants to violate the law, they will not be held accountable, and and in fact, only you will be held accountable for refusing to violate someone's constitutional rights yeah it puts if you're the line attorney yeah i mean it leaves you with no option but to go to the bar every time and file but in, in this case in the hillman case he called the bar for advice so it means like after the fact you have to file a bar grievance and that still wouldn't keep you from getting fired absolutely not next up bail legislation died this year at the texas legislature getting bogged down after Governor Abbott intervened. By the end, neither the reformers nor the bail industry supported it, and a shell bill that passed the House was never referred. So, Scott, fill in the blank. Texans should be blank that bail reform didn't pass this year. Grateful. The the bill, as it finally passed the House, was a complete mess and didn't really address any of the fundamental issues being raised in all the federal litigation around the state. It was just a new set of bureaucracies and people to try and get their fingerprints on the process mm-hmm. and and was not going to be anything that helped. 
And yeah. no matter what, because it didn't affect any of the issues at play in the federal litigation, we were going to be back in two years anyway. Yeah. So why do this now? It didn't make any sense. And I was very relieved and happy that it didn't go all the way. <laughs> yeah. I don't have much to add to that other than, you know, happy that there'll be informed decisions two years down the road. Right. The thing really had sort of a, a steamroller aspect to it. Once the governor got his version of the bill filed mm. instead of the original version, and they just sort of put their foot on the gas and were ramrodding it through, but there wasn't the kind of informed debate you're talking about that, that could have made it actually useful. Arguably, the most absurd outcome from the 86th Texas legislature was that they accidentally abolished the plumbing board, leading one media outlet to announce we're all master plumbers now. So, <laughs> so Mandy, I've been thinking more than 65,000 prisoners leave TDCJ every year, and many of them struggle to get jobs. But as of September 1st, all of them will be qualified to work as plumbers in Texas, although in larger cities, some local regulations may still apply. So Mandy, fill in the blank. The idea that former prisoners should all hang out shingles as plumbers is great. <laughs> I, I, I see no problem with this. I mean, plumbing is not that. I mean, if you have to shut off a water main somewhere, I think that's when a license needs to come in. But um, right now, there is a lot of work that falls within the purview of plumbing that you can learn how to do and perform very competently after watching YouTube videos. Right. And in fact, the last time I had a plumber over my plumber, in fact, watched a YouTube video to, <laughs> to check and see exactly what it was they were they were doing. So I, I think that's right. I, I think the idea that, that they should all become plumbers is, is opportune, certainly. <laughs> um, it, it's it, We didn't have this option before. Uh, and I think you're right that, you know, a lot of plumbing is the lower level stuff. If you're if you're talking about the plumber to, to manage the gas systems in the hospital, Okay, yeah. yeah, go ahead and 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 require more certification. But the guy who came over and, you know, pulled the utensils that have fallen down into my sink trap out and mm. you know, uh, no. That that maybe we don't need. So. Yeah, no. I anyway, I, I connected my own dishwasher, not that hard. I'm just going to say it. But it's insane <laughs> that they let the plumbing board lapse. Yes. That is ridiculous. It well, is just you know, one of the funniest things to happen well, in know, quite a while. You, know, just, you, know, you find opportunities where you can, Scott. Finally, I wanted to take a few moments today to talk about this new notion of progressive prosecutors we're hearing so much about in the justice system. In San Antonio, for example, Joe Gonzalez won praise for refusing to prosecute trace drug cases and marijuana possession of less than one ounce. But John Crusoe in Dallas received extreme partisan backlash when he announced his decarceration reforms this spring, mostly centered around his decision not to prosecute people who steal for subsistence as opposed to profit. And none of Texas' so-called progressive prosecutors have proposed agendas as aggressive as DAs in Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, and elsewhere. I would expect a couple of our Democratic district attorneys to face primary opponents in 2020 because they've failed to enact as progressive an agenda as their supporters want. But I also wonder if we aren't fundamentally misunderstanding the prosecutor's role by demanding they be more progressive, quote unquote. Can an agency whose primary purpose is to seek punishment ever be progressive? 
<laughs> Mandy, what do you think? Is the idea of a progressive prosecutor a pipe dream? Or do you see electing reform-minded district attorneys as a realistic strategy for reducing mass incarceration? I don't know if it's a pipe dream. I think what I'd say is it's a misnomer. Because progressive implies that there's a political affiliation. And, and really what we should expect or be asking of prosecutors and what I think we're getting at is right-sizing this use of government power. And, and that, I think, cuts along both party lines. We want a prosecutor that's not gratu like gratuitously incarcerating people or seeking punishments that serve no function. For example, if you incarcerate someone for a, a minor misdemeanor offense, what you're really doing is making that person more likely to commit crime because, you know, incarceration disrupts their whole family and means that they'll lose their job. And, you know, you're setting them up for failure. Right. And so I, I, just, I just sort of disagree with this branding mm. inherently because I, I think it's really more about responsibility. And if you look at some of the stuff that Larry Krasner has been doing in Philadelphia, declining to seek jail time in misdemeanors or certain misdemeanor cases or documenting the expense to the government that would occur if they actually sought that prison time. That Those are, if you think about it, you could see a Republican prosecutor That's doing right. that. In many ways, those are actually conservative reforms in, 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 a, in, a, in a real way in terms of like a fiscal conservative and a, a smaller government footprint, all that. Yeah. I, mean, I agree that it's a it's a misnomer and it's bad branding. I, I don't feel, because I feel like no prosecutor will ever live up to it. Mm. Um, a prosecutor's job, to my mind, is inherently re regressive. There's nothing progressive about it. A prosecutor has just one tool in the toolbox. They lash out with the power of the state to exact retribution on someone who violates its dicta. That's mm -hmm. what the prosecutor does in all circumstances. Someone has violated the law. The prosecutor threatens them with punishment and applies punishment if they're able. Mm -hmm. And that's what they have to try and influence the system. Well, there's nothing progressive about punishment. It's a, it's a regressive thing inherently. Mm -hmm. You're only going to damage the person that you're punishing. It's why you're doing it. <laughs> yeah. And so there's no progressive aspect to it. And I feel like that we set a false expectation there when we think that, and there's been this national movement mm -hmm. that I really, in many ways, disagree with that's been saying, oh, well, the prosecutors are the most powerful actor in the system, and we, we, we have to change the prosecutors, and then everything will be fixed. Well, on the ground, when we do that, it turns around, and, and then the, the judges are the problem, or the local criminal defense bar is the problem, problem, or the court of criminal appeals is the problem. Or that, that we're in this, we're in a system, an ecosystem, and that one actor is not omnipotent, and and in fact their role is limited to lashing out in retribution. Yeah, as opposed to talking about how we have a whole system that is capturing too many people. That's right. So I so I don't I don't believe there is such a thing. Like I said in the opening, I, I kind of think it's Bigfoot. <laughs> Um, I don't, I don't, I think you're, you're searching for something that doesn't actually exist. I mean, yeah, I guess maybe we're agreeing with each other at the end of the day. I just, I, I do think that we can have a responsible prosecutor. Right. Right. I, I do too. And, and, and I think that's the, really the most you can hope for. Yeah. And, probably. and, you know, 
God help us, we need somebody <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Now it's time for our rapid fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? I'm raring to go. First one, the governor has already signed legislation ending most red light camera systems in Texas with a handful grandfathered until their contracts end. Scott, what should happen to outstanding debts for red light camera tickets? They absolutely should abolish those debts and get rid of them just like the state did with the driver responsibility surcharge. It's probably a mistake not to do it in the legislation and simply require it. But every city that has red light camera systems needs to turn around and get rid of that debt. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a sort of a public statement about Texans don't really want this anymore. They keep getting shot down in local elections. Now the legislature's done it. It's time to just be done with this. All right, my turn. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick refused to let the Senate consider legislation to reduce marijuana penalties this spring even though the measure was endorsed by the state GOP platform and Governor Greg Abbott. Meanwhile, Colorado lowered penalties for possessing Schedule I drugs to a misdemeanor this year, joining Oklahoma, Utah, and several other states in right-on-crime-style reforms. So, Mandy, when will Texas laws on controlled substances become as progressive as Oklahoma's? I don't know. When we all start moving to Oklahoma for its, you know, well-founded policies? I don't know if that'll get us to change ours, but but the the idea that anyone should have to move to Oklahoma for good government is just a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre, bizarre thought. Bizarre, but oh my gosh, it's I've, the I've always we live in Scott. I've always said the only good thing to come out of Oklahoma is I thirty five, and now I've been proven wrong. Oh yeah, no that that was not a good thing. <laughs> Last one. Last month, reporters went through a house at Pecan Park in Houston where narcotics officers raided the home and killed two people and their dogs. They were surprised to find tagged evidence left behind, including bullet casings, baggies with possible narcotics in them, and even a couple of human teeth. So, Scott, why do you think Houston police left all this evidence behind? Honestly, I think it's because they had shot and killed the two suspects who lived in the house. Mm. And so the only reason that you would gather evidence is if anyone intended to hold police officers accountable for what went on there. And it's very clear the Houston police has no interest in doing that whatsoever. And so why gather your bullet casings or narcotics baggies or human teeth if if it's the only thing they can be used for is to hold officers accountable, and no one in the department wants that to occur. All Sorry. right. We're out of time. We'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Henson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzilla with the Texas Defender Service. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or listen to it on my blog, Grits for Breakfast. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. Oh, and a shout out to Elsa Alcala, my former partner at the Texas legislature. I miss you already. You did a great job, Elsa. Glad we got to work work with you this session. The incarceration train keeps rolling, rolling down the line. It's filled with pain and sorrow, but the driver is doing just fine. Just fine. And the passengers in cargo. 
when they get to the end of the line. Gonna learn this train window where Lord and the ticket price show us high. Stop the train, 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 I'm getting off. Oh!